following Him, but there are some uh, who are willing to pay the price. Uh, they leave their nets, they leave their boats, they leave their families, and they follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And these are referred to as disciples and uh, not the multitudes. And by the way, uh, all of us fit into one of those two categories today. We're either part of the multitudes or we're part of the disciples. And uh, what determines which one we are in is dependent upon what we are willing to pay in order to uh, follow Christ and His Word. Are we willing for there to be a cost involved? Um, it's interesting that when uh, David, who was the uh, king of Israel, uh, he did something that God had told uh, Israel they were not supposed to do, and that is he numbered Israel. He, uh, he went through and counted the number of uh, fighting men, the men that were uh, available um, that could fight and, and carry a sword. And for, forgive me, let me turn that off. And uh, God had told them not to do that because God was the defense of Israel. And they were to have their faith in Him to deliver them. But David numbered Israel, and as a result of that, God uh, judged them, and He gave David a choice between three judgments. And David chose to um, be under the, the hand of the Lord's judgment rather than uh, his enemies. Uh, he said, I, I want to be under God's judgment because God is a merciful God. And so he chose three days of the pestilence of the Lord over Israel. The angel of the Lord comes and he slays 70,000 men of Israel. That's a lot of people. And uh, David is repentant. David is in sackcloth and ashes. He's speak, seeking the Lord and uh, pleading with the Lord. And uh, God uh, has His angel coming to Jerusalem. And the Bible says that on Mount Moriah, uh, that David uh, lifted up his eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord with his sword hovering over the city of Jerusalem, ready to bring judgment to that city. And God, as is so typical in what David was counting on, is a merciful God. And God stopped the angel of the Lord and He said, It is enough. And aren't we glad for God's mercy? Because while there is chastening in our lives, oftentimes it's only by His mercy and His grace that we're not consumed every day. I'm thankful for a merciful God and a gracious God. And David was so grateful for that. He uh, came to the, uh, the threshing floor of a man by the name of Ornan. And he asked the fellow, he said, can you give me a place to make a sacrifice? And he said, let me have uh, the, the, the means to be able to make a sacrifice. And Ornan told the king, he said, uh, he said here's the oxen and, and here's the plows and all the, the, the implements that I use to, to make my livelihood. He said, I give it all. And boy, what a great, great lesson there is to be learned by the spirit of Ornan. He said, I give it all. He was willing to give all of his sacrifice uh, to the Lord and to give all of his livelihood to the Lord. But I love what David said. David said, no, I want to buy it from you. Because he said, I won't give to the Lord a sacrifice that does not cost me anything. It would be a wonderful thing if we could learn to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I want to follow Christ regardless of the cost. We live in a day where we like to take our ease, don't we? We in the United States of America have been so blessed, no matter what recent events have happened in our nation to cause us to have some concern. 
we still are a very blessed nation. We're a very spoiled nation in that God has so richly blessed us for so long that we've become accustomed to it. We do not like hardship. In fact, nowadays, when we're inconvenienced, we think we're being persecuted. We don't even understand what persecution is. We've lost what it means to say, Lord, I'm willing no matter the cost. What we often say when we say it is, Lord, I'm willing up to this point, but no further. These men were saying, Father, I forsake all of it. Lord, I'll forsake all of it to follow you. In fact, it's interesting that there was a time where the Lord talked to three different men, and He said to two of them, He said, follow me. And uh, they said, Lord, we will follow you, but let me first. And then they all had an excuse, didn't they? Their problem was not a a willingness to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. They were all willing. Their problem was they weren't willing to follow Him regardless of the cost. They weren't willing to follow Him first above all things. And really, the biggest problem that we face in the day that we live, in the, the world that we're living in, is that there are a lot of people who have trusted Christ as their Savior, but we're not willing at any cost to follow Him. We all seem to have our, our limit. We all seem to have that place where we say, Lord, I'll follow you up to this point, but no more. And some people's limits are further than others, but we all seem to have them, don't we? Somebody told D.L. Moody years ago, he said, the world has yet to see what a man fully yielded to God can do. D.L. Moody said, by the grace of God, I'll be that man. And, and certainly God used him, and he was a man that was yielded to the Lord Jesus Christ. But even if you read the biography of D.L. Moody, you'll find that no matter how much his desire and his intent was, he still was not fully yielded to God. There were still things that D.L. Moody did that were what D.L. Moody wanted. And that's the great battle, isn't it? In fact, the Christian life is is really, uh, living a a victorious Christian life or not, is really, uh, it boils down to one decision. And the the decision is this, God's way or my way. And, And that's really it. If we could ever, if we could ever understand that this, this living the Christian life comes down to that one decision, it comes down to that decision in every aspect of our life. It might help us to better understand what it's going to take for us, the cost that it's going to cost us, to be able to live a victorious Christian life. The Sermon on the Mount is not preached to those that are unsaved; it is preached to his disciples. In fact, the entire sermon is to do nothing more than to teach His disciples how to be disciples. In the first three of the Beatitudes, He deals with what they were inwardly, their heart. He deals with issues of the heart. When He gets to the fourth Beatitude, He changes the terminology and the language, and He uses the little word do, D-O, meaning action. By the way, that ought always be the priority of the Christian life, that we ought to be something inwardly first. Our character with God has to take the priority. Before we ever go out and attempt to do something for God, we need to be something for God. There are a lot of people, and in fact, I went to colleges that taught the opposite of that. They said that 
we need to go out and we need to work for the Lord and we need to serve the Lord. And don't worry about your own personal walk with God. That will take care of itself. As long as you get out here and serve, 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 serve. Can I tell you, that is the exact opposite of what the Lord told His disciples to do, isn't it? He did tell them to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But if you'll understand, He did say this, but, before you go, He said, but, tarry ye in Jerusalem. I want you to go, but don't go yet. He said, tarry ye in Jerusalem until ye be endued with power. What was He saying? He was saying, disciples, there needs to be something in here before you go out and do something. By the way, there's a great, great drought in the world today for Christians that seek to have the power of the Holy Spirit in their hearts first. That tarry with the Lord Jesus Christ. That spend time in His presence in their personal walk with the Lord. I uh, was listening to uh, a fellow who uh, made a statement, a fellow years ago in the early 1900s, a man by the name of Alexander McLaren, wrote a, a commentary on the Bible, was a, a, a tremendous Bible scholar. I, I wouldn't agree with everything that he said, but he was a, a solid man in most areas of doctrine. And he made this statement. He said that powerful personal service to God is second in priority. He said powerful, pious, holy Living in a walk with God must be the paramount thing. We get those two mixed up so often. And he deals with the disciples on what they were, and then he begins to, after he deals with their heart, he says, now here's the things you need to do. And he goes through the Beatitudes, and he teaches them some things about how they should be doing some stuff. Their motivations, their heartbeat, their mindset towards things. And then he gets to verse number 13. We dealt with this last Sunday. Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is worth good for nothing, but be cast down and trodden under the foot of men. And we talked about salt and the purifying and preserving effect that salt has. The importance of salt coming in contact in order to be able to be uh, savory, in order to be able to have the ability to uh, be used in its intent. He spoke of the fact that we are the salt of the earth, this, this earth that has been corrupted and tainted by sin, the impurities of this world, are to be purified. The, the Christians, the disciples, let me put it this way, because we're not Christians that are the multitudes, but Christians who are the disciples are to have a purifying effect on this world. This world should become better and better in their morals and be drawn to the moral law of God because of the, the influence of God's people in this world. But we are not seeing that in the day that we live because we have a lot of people who are Christians in name only and they have lost their savor. We spoke of two things last week that were necessary. If you and I are to be savory in our salt, there are two things that must happen. Number one, our walk with God must be personal and powerful. It must be personal and powerful. And number two, we must contact those that we long to see drawn to the Savior. You cannot sit in your ivory palace and expect for God's work to be done. You cannot sit in the pews of Keith Heights Baptist Church and come Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night and feel like you have done your Christian duty and your Christian service and never come in contact with that which needs to be purified. 
there needs to be a purifying effect of our hearts and our lives, and we must come in contact. He deals with two things here, and I love the two that he deals with, and he uses these word pictures. Jesus, the perfect teacher, isn't he? He speaks of salt made up of two ingredients, sodium and chloride, and the idea that, that sodium is a caustic, eroding uh, poison. It'll kill you. And yet when it's mixed with chloride, when that chloride comes, and it, not to get into a whole lot of chemistry, but pulls a positive ion from the chloride uh, 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 substance over into the sodium, and it, and it creates a new, a new substance. That, that, that taking of another into the sodium causes it to become something new. And now instead of being poison, it is now something that is good. In fact, it is something that life cannot exist without. And that is salt. Sodium. It's interesting that when we get saved, something from the heart of God, His Holy Spirit, comes and becomes a part of us. And the Bible says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And now we become salt. We're no longer caustic. We're no longer part of the problem of this world that is corrupted by sin. We now become part of the solution, the purifying effect of it. And by the way, Christians ought to have a purifying effect. There ought to be a boldness in our, in our message, and there ought to be a purity in our lifestyle that influences and causes this world to be purified from the carnal, carnalness, the carnality of it, and, and the, the impurity of it, and, and the caustic nature of sin that is in this world. And the Bible speaks of that here. And I think when Christ was speaking of this, He chose two perfect examples. Of course, He would. He's the perfect teacher. Then he says in verse 14, and I want us to look at this. This is our message today. Not only are we the salt, but notice this. He says, ye are the, what? The light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Salt and light. What an amazing combination. In fact, it's interesting that in order for salt to do its effect, it has to be something inwardly. It has to have savor to it. And it's more dealing with the internal nature that, that just bubbles over to the outside and becomes a seasoning effect and a purifying effect. But when we come to the issue of light, light is not something that is internal, but light is now something that is what? It's external. Its whole purpose is not to be hidden, but to be displayed. And it's interesting that he deals not only with the heart of the issue, but with what we are to be outwardly. As we look at this, I want you to turn with me to a couple of fairly familiar passages. We're going to be right back in Matthew 5 here in just a moment. But turn with me first of all, if you will, to John chapter number 3. John chapter number 3. And I want us to look at a couple of things that I think are, are very interesting when it comes to studying. Isn't it amazing how the Bible is just so fitly framed together? It just seems to, to complement itself and teach truths that are, are compounded throughout its teachings. Look in John chapter number 3 and verse number 16 with me for a moment. 
For God so loved the world, and this is what He tells the disciples, you're the light of the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting... What's the next word here? Life. Okay? Now keep that in mind for a moment, that He has come into this world to bring man everlasting life. Those that will believe in Him, according to this verse, the Bible says, shall have everlasting life. Keep that word in mind for a moment. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him that is not con- uh, he that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that what's the next word here? Light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. We have two different words that are used here in John chapter number 3. Life and light. Can I tell you that there is a bond between those two? Let's look at it in Scripture. Can we do that? Let's see what the Bible has to say about it. Turn back to John chapter number 1. I love this. John chapter number 1. And we're going to begin in verse number 1. We're going to read down several verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, capital W, was God. Who are we speaking of here at this point? The Lord Jesus Christ. All right? The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was what? Life. And the life was the... Wow, isn't that amazing? The life that Christ brings. Christ brings what? According to John 3.16, what kind of life? He brings everlasting life. He says this life is... What does it say here? In verse number 4, In Him was life, and the life was the... Light of men. When the Holy Spirit of God moves in and gives us everlasting life, we become a light. It's not our light. It's His. But it's residing in us. I love the story of Gideon, don't you? They took torches and they put pictures on top of them. They surrounded the enemy. At a, at a given point, they blow the trumpet, they say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, and they break the vessels and they hold up the lights. I think there's a valuable truth taught here. We have this light that Christ gives us inside of an earthen vessel, don't we? It is hidden by that earthen vessel. And the way... For the light to shine is for the vessel to be what? Broken. John, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, says, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. I love the next verse. Let's look at this. And the light 
What's the next word here? Shineth in darkness. Can I help you with something here? Darkness exists, but light shines. Nobody walked into a lighted room and said, turn on the dark switch. In fact, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. Can I tell you this? In our natural state, the Bible says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. In our natural state, we are in darkness. We don't have to do anything to have darkness. Man does not have to do anything to be in darkness. But there has to be something done for light to come into it. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ has to come in and reside there. Notice he says this, And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Now let's go back to Matthew chapter 5 for a moment. When we get saved... The Bible says we have everlasting life. According to John 1, that life is the light of the world. The Lord Jesus Christ, indwelling us by His Holy Spirit, becomes a light that is to be shining in us. It is hid in an earthen vessel, and the more we are able to break our vessel, to say, Lord... Not my will, but thy will, the more the light is able to shine. I want us to look at four things, and we're going to be brief this afternoon. In fact, we'll probably be done before noon. But let's look at Matthew chapter 5. I want you to notice four things here that I think are very, very important that Christ points out. In verse number 14, he, let me just start with this. Notice he says in verse 14, Ye... Two little, two little letters. Ye are the light of the world. It's amazing. When I was growing up, I grew up in a pastor's home. I always used to think, well, Christ is the light of the world. The whole world was lost in the darkness of sin. The light of the world is Jesus. not scriptural. Yes, it's His light. But we're the light of the world. We're the ones that are in the world that are carrying the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know it's not a light that is of ourselves, but it is part of the same concept when we studied the idea of salt, that when He came to live inside of us, we became a new creature. Now there is something that is exhibited outwardly. By the way, whether we want it to or not, when we name the name of Christ and we say, I'm a Christian, I've trusted Christ as my Savior, whether you want to be or not, you're put under a microscope by everybody in this world. They're looking at you. In fact, so much so that the disciples were told by the Lord Jesus Christ, He says, you are the light of the world. He says this, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. You may say, well, I don't want that. Too late. <laughs> Should have thought about that before. You're, you're going to be seen. It can't be hid. 
It's not able to be hid. Now, your light can be hid, but your life cannot. It is a city. It is set upon a hill. Now, notice what he says here in verse number 14. You are the light of the what? World. Can I tell you this? Our light is to go where? According to this, in that statement, our light is to shine where? To the world. If we compare that with Scripture, could we say that that is in agreement with other passages of Scripture? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. This light that we have is supposed to shine in a world everywhere we go. That means that we don't just become a Christian on Sunday morning. And we don't just kind of kind of come from work and try to get our hearts and our minds in a, in a spiritual frame of mind on Wednesday night before we come to Wednesday night prayer meeting. It means that we are a Christian and we trust Christ and we live in such a way and we speak in such a way and we act in such a way all the time. Why? Because our light is to shine everywhere we go. Everywhere we go. Isn't it amazing when we see such a huge task, we sometimes are overwhelmed by it. In fact, when we think of the fact of the, uh, you know, the Bible tells us that we're to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, Christ did not intend for that to just be once during the course of humanity. He intended that job to be accomplished in each generation. He, he, he wanted that to be done, and in fact, the first generation did it. The, the, the disciples were accused of they that had filled the world, or turned the world upside down. They had filled Jerusalem, the Bible says, with this doctrine. The first generation did this. They filled the whole world with the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the first century church, you would have been hard-pressed to go anywhere in the world and not find somebody that did not even know who Jesus Christ was. Now, they may have rejected Him, and many of them did, but they at least knew who He was. The message had been propagated. God gives us the challenge in each generation. And I'll tell you this, when we're looking at seven point however many billion are in the world today, and we take this and say, Lord, I'm just one person, what can I do? I don't know, I can't reach all this world with the gospel. In my lifetime, if I spent every waking moment trying to reach every person I could, It's not going to happen. But if every Christian would shine the light of the gospel that is in their heart with every person they could in all the world, we'd at least make a dent in it. And with God's Holy Spirit, we'd do far more than that. But isn't it amazing as we look at a big task, how often we kind of let some things fall through the cracks? Uh, I've built a couple of houses in my lifetime. <clears throat> and uh, at the onset, you think, boy, I can build this house. And you make your plans, you get an architect, and you get the house built. And uh, I remember building my house down in Florida. I helped my mom and dad build their house. I helped another fellow by the name of Mr. Richardson build his house and uh, involved in each of the three. And I'll tell you what I found in every situation is when you're 90% done with the house, you only have 90% more to go. And the reason is you, you look at the bulk of the work getting done, but the trim work, oh, those of you that have done it know what I'm talking about. 
You'll take as much time on the trim work as you will on anything else. And that is not my forte. I want to get in there and get it done. I want to knock it out. And so lest we get the mindset that we're to reach all the world and we make a great and a grand effort to do so, there may be a few here and there that we miss along the way because we're overwhelmed with the enormity of the task. Notice what the Bible says here. You're the salt of the earth. I'm sorry, verse number 14. You're the light of the world. But then he makes a statement here, a city that is set on the hill. We're to reach the whole world, but can I encourage you in this? Even though each of us is a city that is set on a hill, there are a lot of cities, if you will, around the world, smaller than the world itself. I'm reminded of Nineveh when Jonah went there and he won the city to the Lord Jesus Christ. The entire city repented. He kind of narrows it down from the whole world to individuals as he deals with them as a city here. And he goes on to say, a city that is set on hill cannot be hid. Can I encourage us in this? That yes, we need to reach the world, but we also need to reach our states, our counties, our cities. And not overlook... I know know churches that are so missions-minded and they won't lift a finger to win one person in their own hometown. They'll send thousands of dollars and even take missions trips overseas. But the person right next door to the church... Never hears the gospel. Somebody wrote a song years ago in the shadow of the steeple. Someone's dying. Why? Because we oftentimes leave our cities unreached. Oh, we want to reach the world, but we leave the cities unreached. Notice also as he goes on, he says, You are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill and cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle. And put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the what? House. Can I tell you this? Your light needs to shine in the world. Your light needs to shine in your communities. Your light needs to shine in your homes. You don't take a candle and hide it under a bushel. You put it up on a candlestick, and if anybody sees your light in its full glory and brilliance, it ought to be the people in your own household. They see the testimony of your life far more than those outside your home, do they not? You might look good at church. You might speak good at work. And act good at work. But what about the light that you have at home? It's amazing how many people are so consumed with how they appear to people outside. But when they come home, their wives, their husbands, their kids get the brunt of their true character. Because the light... It's not shining very brightly in the homes. He says that we do not put the candle under a bushel in verse 15. He says, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto, what's the next word here? All that are in the house. All that are in the house. 
We need to make sure our light shines to this world. We need to make sure our light shines in our own communities, the, the people we come in contact with, our workplaces, our social places. It needs to shine brightly in our own homes. And then I want you to notice also, he says this, Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before what? Men. Every person, individually, needs to see your light. It's amazing to me that as we develop friendships, as we draw close to an individual, how we, and I'm going to use this phrase, and I, and I, I want you to follow with me for a moment, we seem to let our hair down, those of us that have it. And I don't mean to make light of this, but we seem to kind of let our guard down, don't we? I was, I was in a meeting a number of years ago, <clears throat> And a, a fellow was a well-known preacher in, in the area that I was at and was a friend of mine. I had known him for many years. And after the service, we were standing in the back and fellowshipping, and some people were coming by and shaking hands. And in a break of people coming by, he leaned over to me, and he asked me a question, and I could tell he was leading up to a joke that there was going to be a punchline to it. And I was puzzled by the question. I didn't know what it was. And uh, he, uh, I said, I don't know. And he told me the punchline. It was one of the most vulgar jokes I think I'd ever heard in my life. And I looked at him and I thought, what is he doing? I guess because of our friendship and the familiarity, there was a a lowering of his character. Perhaps that's the way he truly was inwardly and felt like this is... He felt comfortable enough that he could just be himself around me. Folks, when I, when I preach, and I know I preach an awful lot on this, that we need to be something inwardly before we ever do the things outwardly, these are the reasons why. Because we're light. And not only are we to be light to the world, that's the easy part. We can put on our suit coats and carry our Bibles. We can tell others in the community that we're a Christian. We can even deceive our neighbors. There's a possibility that even as close as we are in our homes, we can even maybe deceive those in our homes. But I have found this, that when the core of our heart is rotten on the inside, eventually it does come out. In fact, the Bible speaks of the fact that a bitter fountain cannot give off sweet water. That a rotten tree cannot give off good fruit. He tells his disciples, he says, you're the light of the world. You need to make sure that you're shedding that light to the world. You need to make sure you're shedding that light to your communities and your homes. And above all, you need to make sure that you have a testimony and you shed your light before all men. Everyone we come in contact with. You meet somebody brand new and they don't know you're a Christian. And they start talking in a certain way. 
Do you laugh and go along with it, knowing that they don't realize you're a Christian? Or do you say, you know what, I, I appreciate your friendship, but, but I can't talk like this. I'm a Christian. I love the Lord. Are we light? By the way, if more Christians would have the boldness to do those things, there wouldn't be such depravity in the world we live in today. If there would be Christians that would stand up and say, I want this light, the life that the Lord Jesus has given me, this everlasting life, the Holy Spirit of God that resides in me, I want it to shine forth. I mentioned it just in passing a few moments ago, but the way to get our light to shine more clearly, I believe there's two things that must happen. Number one, our walk with the Lord must be primary. By the way, that was the same one we had for salt. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus, speaking to the church at Laodicea, said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. The church at Laodicea thought they were wealthy, increased with goods, and had need of nothing. From outward appearances, you would look at the church of Laodicea and say, Boy, what a great church. But they had, they had so pushed the Holy Spirit out of their midst that he felt like he needed to knock on their heart's door and say, Hey, you need to invite me to come back in so we can fellowship together again. He's not speaking of salvation because he talks about coming in and supping with them. It's interesting to me that one of the big reasons we don't have more light is because we've pushed the light out of our life. We've pushed Him. I'm not saying you lose your salvation, but we've, we've quenched and we have grieved the Holy Spirit of God. And He's the one that gives us the light that we have. So our walk with God must be primary. Secondly, we must break the earthen vessel that the light lives in. We've got to get to the point where there is a yieldedness, a breaking of our will, saying, Lord, I want Your will done and not mine. That that light could shine forth more clearly, and the more broken we become, the more His light can shine. It's amazing how many times in the Scriptures the Bible uses pictures of this. The alabaster box. In order for the fragrance to fill all the room, it had to be broken. We are very prideful, very spoiled, very self-centered here in the United States of America. What our world needs are some Christians that will say, Lord, I want to be a broken vessel so Your light can shine. So that men may see my good works and glorify my Father which is in heaven. He's teaching His disciples. It doesn't come without a cost. There is a cost. The question today is, are we willing... To do it regardless of the cost.
Let's stand together, shall we? Father, we're thankful for Your Word. I pray that You would help us to learn from it. Guide and direct our hearts this afternoon. Lord, I don't believe this is a time to struggle with Your Holy Spirit. If there's conviction, Lord, may we, may we just simply yield to it. May we simply just do it. I pray that You'd help.